come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 74 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones, number three. As what I have paired up for you, they don't necessarily fit as much as I kind of would have liked. But I mean, I can kind of give a little bit of correlation here. Is the first one is from 1931 of King of the Wild. And that is going to be paired up with Godzilla versus Kong. And the way I'm kind of getting through this is that, you know, Godzilla is king of the monsters. We have king of the wild. Kind of a little bit of a stretch there, but, you know, it is what it is. And I think these movies kind of have an interesting kind of double feature in general. So those are going to be the two featured reviews on this episode. And then for mini reviews, I have The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2006. I watched The Dark, a movie from 1993. I Am Omega. And the old dark house, and this is the one from 1932. But before I get into any of those reviews that I have on this episode, I do want to do my monthly review. And for my monthly review for the month of March, I watched 31 total films. 23 of them are horror films. Three of them are 2021 releases, and my percentage there would be 74.19%. Now, the ones that I watched for in the month are Occult, Thirst, My Bloody Valentine, Existence, Amir, Psycho Gorman, Svengali, Jennifer's Body, Dagon, Leprechaun 3, Shadow in the Cloud, Gorgo, The Grudge from 2020, Bloody Hell, I See You, Murder by the Clock, Habitual, Last Man on Earth, Game of Death, King of the Wild, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2009, The Dark, I am Omega, and then 10 countries are represented with United States, Japan, South Korea, Canada, United Kingdom, France, Belgium, Spain, New Zealand, and Australia. The 2021 watches that I did are Psycho Gorman, Shadow in the Cloud, and Bloody Hell. The oldest watches are a tie between Svengali, Murder by the Clock, and King of the Wild, all from 1931. The average year for the month of everything I watch is 1997. 
the highest rating is Thirst with a 9, and then the lowest rated is actually on this episode with a 3, and that'll be coming up here shortly. The average rating that I had of everything was a 7.2. The only one not on this feed this month is Existence, and that is on the podcast Under the Stairs Movie Club Challenge. I believe that episode recently just came out as well. So for my yearly totals here, for 2021 watches, I'm at 13. For horror movies that I've watched are 79. For total films, it's 101. My average year is 1996. My average rating is a 7.6. And percentage of horror is a 78.22%. So that's all I really wanted to get you up to speed there for that monthly review. So what I am going to do is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And once again, I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2006. I'm back on watching, you know, some of these different adaptations of this novella. That is from Robert Louis Stevenson. This version is written and directed by John Carl Beekler. This stars Tony Todd, Tracy Scoggins, and Vernon Wells. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, Dr. Henry Jekyll experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden, dark side of man and releases a murderer from within. Now, this is a movie that I picked up some time ago and just now getting around to see it. The reason is that I, when I was watching the silent version of this story, I decided to collect as many of the adaptations as I could find. Aside from that, I knew that Tony Todd starred in this, but was shocked to see some of the other names in the opening credits. But I will get into that here in just a minute. But what I kind of end up doing, as I've said this before, is I kind of like to see what the different variations are in this story. And you really have to do what you can to stand apart from the rest. And the first things I was saying is that, you know, this was written and directed by the late Beekler. I know him from doing special effects work, and I've seen a couple of different movies that he's directed as well. What I found interesting here is that Beekler had worked with Charles Band and Full Moon, and we're getting a kind of a reunion here of sorts, as Scoggins was in Demonic Toys, and Tim Thomerson was in the sequel with her as well in Dowman vs. Demonic Toys. I think it's fun when you see people that have worked you know, together in the past and have consistently. And then this movie also has a similar low-budget effort feel that you'd see from Full Moon. I do like the modern take on this story. We are set in more present times, and I like that Dr. Jekyll is working with nanotechnology. And I should also point out that Todd plays the title character here of both Jekyll and Hyde. And then, what I was saying here is that this nanotechnology is the basis of the serum being used. This one is also using the idea that he has a heart condition, and from what he is working on, he is trying to correct that. There is a solid social commentary here that is relevant with the fact that Dr. Jekyll has results with lab animals, but in order to move to human trials, he needs much more data. So this bothers him, so he decides to use it on himself. And I bring this up because we're living in a pandemic where some people are afraid to get the vaccine to the virus itself. And it's just kind of interesting that we're kind of seeing something play out here with that. Now what works here also is Todd's size. He's playing Mr. Hyde, which, you know, you kind of want this person to be more monstrous. They decided to make him more human-like while also being animalistic. As I was getting at here, Todd is massive human being, and being that I think he fits for this monstrous take on Mr. Hyde. I'll actually go into this performance here as well. His Dr. Jekyll is a good-hearted person. He feels bad for what he's done as Mr. Hyde, so he's giving aid to those that he's hurt, even though this is easily traced back to him. Dr. Jekyll is a tragic figure. Todd does a solid job as well as his take on Mr. Hyde. He does have some one-liners that don't really work for me. I'm glad that they're letting him let loose a little bit here and taking you know, on in the vein of Freddy Krueger or like Leprechaun with the quips. It just doesn't land for me, but that's what a lot of villains were going to, so I can understand why they would do it here with him. Then the last thing I kind of wanted to go into with the story would be I do like incorporating elements from the novella. We, of course, have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as the good and bad of this one individual. There was a stretch there where the movie had me questioning if they were going to be the same person or not, which I did like that they were doing that little bit of swerve there. Utterson, Lanyon, Enfield, and Gerard Poole are all names that are taken from the source material as well. And I did also find it funny that the song that is sung at Opera Night is from Faust, and it's about the duality of the human soul, which is you know tying back into everything we're getting here as well. Now, since I've already said my piece on Todd, I'll go to the rest of the acting. Scoggins isn't great, but she's fine as a detective. I like the dark secret that gives her this complex and she's not carrying her gun because of it. 
even though she could lose her position as a detective, she doesn't. She's quite attractive as well for an older lady. Wells is solid as this doctor who is friends with Dr. Jekyll, and I'd say that the rest of the cast just round this out for what was needed. None of the acting is great, but it's definitely passable in my opinion for the most part. So then the last thing I want to go into here would be the effects. For the most part, I'd say that they go practical and they're fine. The look of Mr. Hyde is interesting, and I'll take it. It would be hard to tell that they're the same person, so I do like that with what they do with the makeup and prosthetics. There is something near the end of the movie, though, with a gorilla or some type of ape bass that doesn't just make sense to me. The movie does use some CGI for the transformation scene. I'm a bit forgiving there because at least they do give us a transformation, but the use of CGI for the blood, I didn't really care for that. So the cinematography, though, was solid enough for what I could tell here. In conclusion, this movie does have some good elements, and I tried to highlight them. I like the modern take on this story. I like what they're exploring and how well Todd plays the two versions of the same character. The rest of the acting is fine. The effects for me are kind of hit or miss, and the movie is just lacking for me overall. There isn't as much tension as I would have liked for it, and I'd say that this is a below average movie, unfortunately. Some things here and there could have helped, but I just don't feel like it has enough to stand on its own from some of the other adaptations or that great of a kind of telling of this story that we all know and have seen other variations on in the past as well. So my rating here for The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2006 is going to be a 4.5 out of 10. And for my next mini review, I have The Dark. This is from 1993. This is directed by Craig Price, and it was written by Robert C. Cooper. It stars Stephen McHattie, Scott Wickware, and Byron James. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a... 2.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, Something is alive beneath the surface of the graveyard. Something with the power to destroy and the power to heal. One man is determined to kill this mysterious creature while another wants to study it. Now this is a movie that I never heard of until I was working my way through that horror movie encyclopedia. It has been helpful in finding some of these lesser known titles that are a bit more obscure when rounding out my viewing history. Now I was impressed to see McCaddy's name listed for this movie. So aside from that, I came in pretty blind except reading this small blurb that was in the encyclopedia. Where I want to start with this is that I can get behind the idea of this movie. It isn't all that original here with an unknown creature living under the ground. What I do think is interesting here is that it has these healing properties from a liquid that it excretes. Hunter, who is the character portrayed by McHattie, uses it for a wound that he has. And it also happens on another character later. Now he is a doctor, so I could see him wanting to study this creature for that reason. Now an issue I have here though is his plan is actually pretty weak in order to capture it. What is interesting here though is the character of Buckner who is portrayed by Byron James. I find it interesting that he wants to destroy this creature. He is part of the FBI, I believe is that's where he works. Usually you have the hero wanting to either kill the creature or preserve it. Since Buckner is our villain, I feel like that is usually have some maniacal plan, but the extent of his is really just to kill this thing. I don't hate this playing with the conventions of what we're used to for a movie like this, but his rationale for wanting to kill it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. So the last part of the story would be the creature itself. I think we have some good aspects and some that don't necessarily work though. This is supposed to be a prehistoric animal that didn't die out. I'm assuming there had been some evolution for it since it has fur. To be honest, it looks like a giant rat or even like a werewolf to an extent. I do know that Hunter states that whatever it is, the fossils they found have never grown to be this big. Being that it has fur, it would have to have evolved to fully work since dinosaurs didn't have hair from what we know. It'd be more like feathers, I believe. 
I do like this element of this goo though that it speeds up healing in humans. Where I think I should go next would be the effects. I will admit the copy of this that I saw wasn't in great shape. I'm assuming it was ripped from VHS which would explain that. What I could see of the creature I thought was good, the backstory we get I think is lacking a bit for what we see, but the more I think about it and break it down the better I am with it. Everything here looks to be done practical which I'm always a fan of. I do think that it needed a bit more blood though to bring some of the realism that they're working towards. Now the next would be the acting. I do have some negatives that I'm going to incorporate here. Before going into that, I think McHattie is solid. He's a good actor so it's wild to see him play in movies like this when he was younger. From there I would say that James plays his villainous character well. O'Connor and Wolvet are both fine and they bring a bit of comedy as well. The actress of Cynthia Bellevue, I think she plays a pretty clueless character. Really aside from McHattie, Nev Campbell is in this movie as her feature film debut is the best performance and shouldn't be surprising. I don't want to necessarily blame the acting though. I do think the movie is lacking a bit with the characters so they come off flat to me. So in conclusion here, I think this movie does some good things and has some good aspects. The idea of this creature is one that I like. By having the movie take place in the cemetery works for the spooky vibe and the effects of the monster work for me as well. McHattie and Campbell have the solid performances while the rest are a bit flat. The movie really is just lacking with the character motivations and I think this comes from the writing to be honest. I just don't think there's enough elements here and I don't really buy into what they're trying to do. That brings me, you know, to seeing this as a below average movie. I can't really recommend it unless you like to see these actors I've highlighted earlier. See them earlier in their careers or some of the creature effects are pretty good and kind of worth what we're seeing here. There's not enough humor for me to, you know, watch this with friends while drinking in my opinion though either. So my rating for The Dark from 1993 is a 4 out of 10. And I also watched I Am Omega. This is from 2007. This is directed by Griff First. It comes from the novel from Richard Matheson and the screenplay by Jeff Mead. This stars Mark Dacascos and Jeff Mead and Jennifer Lee Wiggins. This is a action adventure drama horror sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.3 on IMDb and a 1.8 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being in post-apocalyptic Los Angeles, zombie-like cannibal humans have rampaged. A lone man is trying to survive and restore order. Now, this is a movie that I got turned on to while I was in college. It might have been my first foray into Asylum films, which, if you're not familiar, are not normally very good. They are made famous by taking popular movies, like in this case I Am Legend, and doing almost bootleg version to confuse people into running or buying them. Now you can see where part of the title came from while also incorporating the Omega Man as well which is another version of the Matheson novel being adapted here. Now where I want to start is that what I like about this movie. For the story they are working with good source material. This one is taking it away from being vampires which was what the book has these creatures to making it like I Am Legend where they're kind of infected zombie type things. What does become an issue here is the budget. We're supposed to believe that LA is overrun with them. The city has a large population so it would work and make sense. The problem though is that we only need to see like a total of 10 of these creatures and I'm assuming some of these are used multiple times. I don't get the feel this movie is trying to convince me of. Something else is that I like the idea of Rinchard who was portrayed by Dacascus comes up with a way to wipe out these creatures. He's setting up time to bombs at locations where there are natural gas pipelines. I think with the amount of bombs he puts down it would have the chain reaction that he wants to eliminate a majority. This also seems like he's trying to raise the tension of the movie, but it doesn't work. 
It isn't established what will happen, and by the time that it does, I've lost interest. To complicate this more, the urgency just isn't there for the characters, in my opinion. They say lines like it is, but it doesn't give me enough to work for it. Another issue here is that the synopsis makes it seem like Richard is helping to look for a vaccine. That is what the character in the novel is doing, but not here. He just seems to be content to slowly go mad and survive. When he learns of Antioch, which is a city where there is supposedly survivors, he doesn't seem to want to join them, and it takes some convincing to help Vincent, who is portrayed by Mead. Speaking of that character, there is a reveal later in the movie that just didn't make sense. It really just seemed like they wanted to have a twist and to kind of pad the time. Now, this also plays into the tension just not being there. Now, one last thing with the story is I'll give some credit would be some of the references. The title I've already laid out. The mannequin that Richard talks to is referencing the Omega Man. He's also reading the story of Heracles from mythology, which is interesting tie-in, especially with what he has to do to save Brianna, who is portrayed by Wiggins. The name Antioch is also has historical reference. I'm not exactly sure what the reasoning would be, but I'm thinking it wasn't picked by accident. I know it has to deal with Alexander the Great is all that I found in my brief kind of research. Now where I'd want to go next would be the acting. Dukoskis isn't a great actor, but I do think that he is, you know, good when they highlight his abilities with martial arts. He fits his character fine and he's the best performance. That isn't saying much though. Mead I think is also fine. He seems to also have a martial arts background to play with there so they can have a little bit of a showdown at one point. Wiggins is attractive and fits her role. Aside from that, everyone else is okay. No one stands out or really hurts the movie in my opinion, but I will give credit to the creatures and how they move. Now speaking of them, the bright spot is the effects. I thought they looked good. They are in the vein of 28 Days Later. I do think a bit more backstory might have helped in my opinion though. The practical effects including the blood look fine. What I was surprised is the lack of CGI. I can actually give credit that they didn't load up there. The cinematography is a bit off as some of the shots in the desert looked a bit too washed out for me and just don't look good. So in conclusion here, this movie it has good source material and I don't mind some of the changes made to the story. The real problem is that it's boring. We don't really learn enough about the characters for me to care and it is trying to rely on the creatures and the action sequences but that isn't enough. The movie is just lacking intention so I can't really give too much credit to this one unfortunately. It is trying to be clever while not putting enough into it for me. I would say that this is quite a bit below average bordering on just being bad but I tried to give points to this where I could still so my rating for I Am Omega is a 3 out of 10. And then I also watched The Old Dark House from 1932. This is directed by James Whale. It's from the novel written by J.B. Priestley. And then the screenplay from Ben W. Levy. The stars Boris Karloff, Melvin Douglas, and Charles Lawton. Now this is a comedy horror thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a... 3.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being Seeking shelter from a storm, five travelers are in for a bizarre and terrifying night when they stumble upon the Femme family estate. Now this is a movie that I had never actually heard of until I was getting into horror podcasts. You don't hear a lot about it, and I think part of that was it seemed to be a lost film for a stretch, and it's outside of that more household names from the Universal Classic line, but this one is one that would pop up periodically, so I did add it to a list of ones I needed to see at some point, and I'm finally you know, getting around to it. But I was shocked to learn that James Whale was the director here, as he did such films as like Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. So I can understand why this one kind of takes a little bit of a back seat to those ones. 
So the first thing that I want to start off here is given by the title. This isn't the first to use this setting of like the old dark house, but I think that it really helps set the mood. All of our characters are stranded in this, you know, old, dark, and scary house where the weather is forcing them to stay inside as there was a landslide that is blocking both ways uh, to leave this area. And this is in, I believe, the Welsh countryside on top of that. Now, that isolation really helps to build that atmosphere this movie needs for me. Now, what else here is going to be the performance of the occupants of the house? We have Morgan, who is portrayed by Karloff. He looks like a brute, and that is exactly what he is. It is warned early on under the guests arriving that when he drinks, that part of him comes out. His size works for that, and then him also not being able to talk contributes as well as he is considered to be, you know, dumb where he cannot speak. They don't do much to give him humanity, and I think that really works for making it to be much more scary about his character. Then there is Horace, who is portrayed by Ernest Thizager. Now, he always seems to be on edge. When he is saying things, it feels like he's not giving us the whole truth, and that also helps to build the tension. This can also be said for his sister of Rebecca, who is portrayed by Eva Moore. Her being partially deaf contributes on top of that, because there's sometimes where you're not necessarily sure if she can hear them or if she's just, you know, forcing them to repeat themselves. Much later, we also get to meet Sir Roderick Femme, who was portrayed by Elpis Dudgeon, and then there's Saul, who is portrayed by Brember Wills. I just like that we get to meet all of these Femmes and their butler, and we just don't know who we can trust, as they are all hiding different secrets. This idea of hiding secrets I also think helped in building the tension and atmosphere. Each of the Femmes will do something to help characters, and we start to trust them, but then they'll do something that breaks that almost immediately. I like that we're always uneasy about them. The isolation of their mansion has caused them to descend into a type of madness, and being stuck with them is terrifying to me. Now the last bit of the story I wanted to comment on is the relationship that develops between Penderel and Gladys, and he is being portrayed by Melvin Douglas while she is Lillian Bond. I don't need that. The movie is only running about 72 minutes, so it feels like it's just kind of there for padding. It doesn't ruin the movie, but I just don't believe these two could fall in love as fast as they do. I am forgiving of this as, you know, this era of movies would have things because it seems like the audience wanted it. Now, this is also based off of a novel, so that could explain it as well, and there could be, you know, a little bit more than what the movie is actually giving us to their relationship. The next I think I'll go to the acting. This is an interesting being after Frankenstein, as I feel like this is an extension of Karloff playing off that character. This is just much more of a villainous version, where that one is an innocent creature that is just too strong for its own good. His size and ability to act without really saying anything fits. Douglas is a bit of a scoundrel in my eyes. He does have a good heart, but there's just something about him I don't trust. Lawton is a bit of a jerk, but I think that is just someone who has money, and that's just kind of what comes off there. I feel like Bond is underdeveloped to me, much like Stuart, and that would also be Gloria Stewart. Then there is Raymond Massey is fine. Thinsiger, Moore, Dudgeon, and Wills are all good as the Femmes. They all have their moments where they do good things, and I like them, but they also have, feels like they're all hiding something, so I can't necessarily trust them as well. So the last thing I kind of want to go over here would be the cinematography. This might be the best shot film from Whale that I've seen. He has those classic monster movies, but this one is just shot beautifully. How things are framed is great. He captures the atmosphere of this place, and I think that the use of light for shadows works as well. Going along with this, I think that the sound design is good and to capture the feel of the storm, and that it was quite effective as well to build that atmosphere. So in conclusion here, I think this is a solid movie. It really captures a subgenre that was popular for the era of the old dark house, and the title fits as well. 
I think that the performances in general are solid, the cinematography is great here, and the sound design really helps as well. There's a bit of issues with underdeveloped characters, and some of the padding to the story just isn't as interesting for me. So overall, I'd say this is a good movie, and one that I will revisit now that I have seen this. So my rating for The Old Dark House from 1932 is an 8 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Tell me, doctors, am I looking into soft made white? The likeness is close. Your hand. So, you see it too. The extraordinary resemblance between us. Your Highness flatters a poor machinery salesman. And uh, speaking of machinery, let me show you. Never mind the machinery. This is the most amazing thing I ever saw. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be King of the Wild. This is from 1931. This was directed by Richard Thorpe. And then it was co-written between Windham Gittins and Ford Beebe as they both helped write the story as well as the scenario. This stars Walter Miller, Nora Lane, and Tom Sadich. I think that's how you would say that. And then it also has Boris Karloff, Dorothy Christie, Victor Potel, Arthur McLaglen, Misha Auer, Otto Hoffman, Carol Nine, Albert D. Winton, Fletcher Norton, Meryl McCormick, Martha Lalandi, and Earl Douglas. This is a action-adventure horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a, I would probably say about a, probably about a two-star rating as there's not enough on there yet to give it an average. And then the synopsis here is American adventurer Richard Grant is falsely accused of murdering an Indian noble and escapes to Africa in search of diamond fields and the real culprit. Now this is another movie that I'd never heard of until I was going through Letterboxd and it appeared on a list of horror films from 1931. Looking through this a bit, I was curious if this was going to be another one of those that were light on the horror elements and or if it was going to be you know, a little bit more than that. Now the other thing that struck me was the runtime. Now this is a serial that was shown in parts, so binging it through like I did does make it a little bit problematic, and I'll delve into that a little bit more here in a minute. 
But before I do that, I have some featured notes where Thorpe was crazy busy as a director. He has 131 films to his credit. The crazy thing is that this is the only one that he did that was horror, and it appears like the only movie that I've seen as well as it was hard to kind of look through some of the posters as I've seen some of the movies at times from this era that I'm just not really sure on the names. And then it also seems like, according to Letterboxd, B. Reeves Eason also got credit as a director here as well. Now, he has 63 credits, but again, the only one that I've seen and the only one that's a horror movie. Gittins is one of our writers, and he has 66 credits. From what I could tell, this is the only one that I have seen. He did write a couple horror films, and one of them was While Paris Sleeps from 1923 that was in the genre. And then the same year was The Itching Palms. Now, he did write the story and screenplay for The Whispering Shadow, which I've heard of I have not seen as of yet. Then the co-writer of BB has 126 writing credits. This is the only thing that he wrote in genre. Now, he was a successful director, though, as well, with 97 credits, which looks to include things like The Invisible Man's Revenge and The Son of Dracula. Now, moving to the stars of this serial, Miller had a long career with 113 credits. Only two were in horror. This is the first, and then a few years later, he was in The Raven. I'm not sure if I've seen that version or not at this time yet. Now, Lane has 35 credits in acting. This is the only one that I believe that I've seen, and this would be the only horror film. And then there's Santashi, who has a solid career with 56 films. This is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen. And then briefly also wanted to kind of go over The Amazing Karloff. I don't believe I've shared this information, but he's been in 166 films. Countless ones are in horror, and he is one of the most watched actors for me at this time with 20 films that I've confirmed I've seen so far. I believe this could actually be higher than that, as there were some before I used Letterboxd, and that was what I was going off of to keep track of things like this for me. Much like the synopsis stated, though, we're starting this off in India, where we have Robert is meeting with the just and kind ruler at this time of Raja, who both of these guys are played by Miller. Robert is actually on a business trip, it seems, and he's there trying to sell a machine to him. Raja is more intrigued in how closely alike they look, and despite being from different parts of the world, which is pretty amazing... And then Robert is made an honored guest and joins them on a hunt. Things take a turn when a tiger attacks Raja, fatally wounding him. Raja wants Robert to pose as him until his brother can arrive. And in the meantime, Robert is asked to pose as Raja to convince the Prince Daka, who is our, that you know nothing has happened as the Raja wants his brother to take over as he is the rightful heir. Robert confides in a hunter of Harris, who is Santushi. Now, he asks him to keep this a secret and take this letter to the brother. Now, Harris sees a chance to make money. He reveals to Prince Daka the truth of Raja. In exchange for when Daka is king, he will pay him a large sum of money. Raja's brother shows up, though, before he can with soldiers. To prevent them from looking guilty, Robert is blamed for Raja's death and he is taken to prison. What is keeping him going is knowing that there's this letter out there that could clear his name. And also interesting enough is that on the backside of this, Harris had Prince Daka write his contract that he will pay him and this is the other thing that robert believes that if he can you know get to this he'll be able to use this even more to clear his the charges against him now some years later though robert breaks out of prison and is in the deserts of algeria he makes his way to lobaga where he seeks out the aid of mustafa who is karloff it is there he also meets other important people to the story robert seeks out the help of mustafa to track down harris and it turns out they're friends Mustafa isn't to be trusted, though. Through Peterson, who is Potel, they learn that Tom Armitage, who is nine, 
has discovered a diamond mine. They want to avoid government interference to get rich. Robert meets Tom's sister of Muriel, who is Lane, and wants to keep you know both of them safe. Complicated even more is that there's this Mrs. LaSalle, who is Christy, who Tom takes a liking to, but also doesn't necessarily trust. There's Mrs. Colby, who is portrayed by Hoffman, who is a secret agent, and then even this mysterious man in black glasses as well that complicates even more of the situation. Harris also has a trained ape man by the name of Beamy, who's portrayed by McLeaglin, as his henchman. Now, it becomes a dangerous game of cat and mouse with many twists and turns as Robert tries to clear his name, help out Muriel and her brother, along with keeping Harris and Mustafa from getting this field of diamonds. Now, this is where I'm going to leave my recap, and I'm just going to go ahead and echo what I said in the start, is that this is a serial film. It is broken up into shorts, and there were 12 chapters for these. Now, these would actually be shown before films in a theater, so this is probably better suited to watch with some gaps, but it does get a bit re repetitive to watch them straight through like I did. Now, I'm not going to try to hold this against it too much, but I just wanted to point it out that I did get a bit bored with how I watched this show. Next, I want to go would be what I found interesting here. This movie is listed as horror, but it is quite light on those elements. When the time that this came out, I can see why it would fall into this genre. What is pretty scary here is there's a lot of instances where animals are attacking people. This is interesting to show how wild the area that these events are taking place. I also believe that this is stock footage that is edited in and works well. Having man-eating animals is pretty horrific. There's also a tribe of Africans that hold our characters hostage and, you know, hunt them as well. This includes some racist things that I will kind of delve into just a little bit later, but this would be a scary situation if you have these tribes people that believe you are guilty of something, and I do think that this is less on the horror elements than some movies that we question today, but this came out in a different time so I can understand, you know, why this is the way it is. Another genre that this should be considered here is crime. Robert is accused of something that he didn't commit. He's spending most of the movie trying to prove the truth. I like that for an early scene, we're seeing him do some nefarious things to prove that. Like, he's going through people's, you know, luggage, going through their desks, things like that. Now, I'm assuming this is pre-code in order to show it. He is willing to go back to prison, though, so that could be their way out in, you know, getting past the censorship. Much like him, Muriel and Tom are also our heroes here. I find it interesting, though, is that all of them, you know, here are white. Robert, for the most part of this movie, though, is posing as an Arab to keep a low profile, though, because, of course, he is in Africa, where, you know, white people at this time kind of stick out a little bit. Now, the reason I brought up the last point about some of the kind of racial issues here is Mustafa is presented as a character we can't trust. He is also an Arab. I will say, though, that Harris is white. Peterson is from a Scandinavian country. Mrs. Colby is also white. And then there's the man in black glasses that is white as well. But we don't know if they're good or not. And that does keep, you know, guessing, you know, who you can trust and who you can't. I don't want to make this film out to be more racist than what it does have, you know, for those elements. It is a different time for one thing. It does have its moments for sure, though, especially when dealing with the African tribe. They are presented as not being that intelligent, but Mustafa finds them to be primitive and easily controlled. He's not wrong, though, especially with some of the technology, which isn't even that great that they can use to kind of confuse them. They are a simpler, you know, lifestyle, so some of the times they've not seen some of the stuff before, you know, it sways them. I just don't like some of the language or how they presented people at times. Now, there's also this ape man of Beanie is another problem I have here. The movie doesn't explain his origin, so I'm a bit forgiving for what they do give to us because he's supposed to be from, you know, the jungles of the Amazon, which 
they're not trying to do what Ngagi did. We're saying that this is, you know, apes mating with humans. This could literally just be almost like a caveman that has survived and, you know, there's just these race of people that are a little bit different from us is how I kind of interpret this character. Now, since I've taken a look at the characters themselves, I will go to the acting next. I think that Miller is solid as both Robert and Raja. I would have liked to seen someone actual Indian actor for the latter character, but the story is needing to be the same person, so I'm forgiving there. Lane is good as our female lead. I like how outgoing and strong she is. It is interesting that Tom takes a backseat to her character as well for the time that this came out. Santushi is good as the sneaky hunter of Harris. Another problematic role is Mustafa. I really like Karloff. I think he's a great actor and he fits the role fine. It is just a different time, but I would like to see someone of Middle Eastern roots play that character. Hotel, Auer, Hoffman, Nine, and the rest of the characters and their supporting roles are fine. McLaughlin as Beamy is also problematic. But again, for what I had said just, you know, a couple minutes ago is I'm not going to hold that against the movie due to, you know, minor backstory that we do get. And it's not as racist as some other movies that have come out in this era. So next I want to go to the effects. For this movie, we really don't get a lot. And being the era that it's set in, it was either done practically in front of the camera or just edited in. The stock animal footage is fine. I did find it funny that for some of the attack scenes with a lion, they actually used a lion rug to simulate it. I could tell it wasn't real or at least wasn't alive anymore, but it is creative in my opinion. The camera is pretty static, but I do feel that they had some outdoor filming here, which does work as well. So just before I kind of end this out, I do have a little bit of trivia here is the sound recording services were secured by the Disney sounding recording company. George Lowry, the film's sound engineer, was an employee of that company and not of Mascot Pictures, who Mascot is actually the ones behind this. The 12 chapters are Maneaters, The Tiger of Destiny, The Avenging Horde, The Secret of the Volcano, The Pit of Peril, The Creeping Doom, Sealed Lips, The Jaws of the Jungle, The Door of Dread, The Leopard's Lair, The Fire of the Gods, and Jungle Justice. Like most of the serials made between 28 and 31, this one contains music over the opening and closing main titles only. The same snake basket is used in chapters 2 and 8. The chapters 1 and 2, as I was saying, the scene showing a lion leaping at someone is actually a lion skin rug. In chapter 1, near the beginning when the Indian nobleman tells Robert Grant, I want you to meet Harris, a famous animal hunter, that line is dubbed as his lips are not moving and the sound is a lot louder. Miller plays both Robert Grant and Indian noble Raja in this film. The same leopard leaping off a branch onto someone is shown in chapters 3, 9, 10, and 11. Each time it's a different person involved, but it's the actual same animal footage put in there. McKee is the narrator at the beginning of each chapter. He also plays the police inspector in the movie. Actors Harry Carey and Edwina Booth were intended to star in this film, but filming of the MGM film Traitor Horn went over schedule, forcing Mascot to recast. So most of the actors did double duty and play an extras in the film, which is kind of funny. The feature film that I've been in before we did something similar. They would play people walking by or sitting around, you know, usually with their backs to the camera, in the hotel lobby, at the market, among the people in the lounge, or on the ship, you know, things of that effect. So in conclusion here, I will say that this is a solid serial. I personally don't know if it's being made, you know, binge straight through like I did. Normally I'm not a fan to start negative, but that does get a bit repetitive and it makes it a bit boring for me. There is still an interesting story and concept here, especially for early cinema. I think that the acting is solid across the board, and there are just some problematic casting and things that are portrayed or said for me, though. 
I will say this is still above average movie, you know, despite my issues with it. So my rating for King of the Wild, I came in with a 6 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think there's a whole lot here that I can really delve into more than what I already have. So what I am going to do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. This is our only chance. We have to take it. We need Kong. The world needs him. To stop what's coming. And this child. She's the only one he'll communicate with. I knew that they had a bond. She had nowhere to go, so I made a promise to protect her. And I think that in some way, Kong did the same. These are dangerous times. Godzilla's out there and he's hurting people and we don't know why. Provoking him that we're not seeing here. I'm of the same opinion. The myths are real. Yeah. There was a war. And they're the last ones standing. I keep reaching for greatness because I'm built from it. Who bows to who? Nobody gonna stop for me. Here we go. Kong bows to no one. second featured review on this episode is going to be Godzilla vs. Kong. Now, before anybody says anything, I know this isn't necessarily horror, but I do consider these kaiju films to be horror adjacent, so that's why I'm including it here. Now, this is a 2021 film. This is directed by Adam Wingard. The story is from Terry Rossio, Michael Doherty, and Zach Shields. And then the screenplay is written by Eric Pearson, Max Borenstein. And then this stars Alexander Sarsgaard, Millie Bobby Brown, and Rebecca Hall, while also featuring Brian Tyree Henry, Shun Oguri, Isa Gonzalez, Julian Dennison, Lance Reddick, Kyle Chandler, Demian Bichar, Kaylee Holtley, Hakim Kai Kazim, Ronnie Chiang, John Porocello, and then Chris Chalk. This is technically, though, an action sci-fi thriller, but as I said, I include kaiju films in my horror stuff. And then this is a co-production between United States, Australia, Canada, and India. This is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb. Nice. And a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, 
Natural rivals, the fearsome Godzilla and the mighty Kong face off with humanity caught in the balance. Now, this is a movie that I was really excited to hear was being made. Now, I knew it was coming out from some of the Easter eggs in movies before it, but having seen some movies in other attempted cinematic universes, you never know what's guaranteed. This one was also caught up in the pushback of dates with the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And I actually got to see this in the theater, which I haven't been able to do very often. So I'm you know, pretty excited to kind of hoping that these kind of get back into the way of things because that did really help with my you know, new watches as well. So before I jump into this movie, I do have some featured notes about the you know, writer, director, and three of the stars. Now, Wingard is one that's done a lot of horror and one of the more prominent, you know, independent names. He has 25 directing credits, of them including shorts, 14 are in the horror genre. His first was a short in 2004 called The Little One. Then his feature film debut was Homesick in the genre, which I haven't seen that one. Now, I have seen his film of Your Next, his segments in VHS and VHS 2, as well as I've seen ABCs of Death, along with his take of Blair Witch. Now, one of our writers here of Rocio has 24 films. Two are technically in genre with Puppet Masters, which my dad really likes that one. I've never seen that one all the way through. And then a movie I've never heard of called Laboratory Conditions. Now, he also wrote the 1998 Godzilla, which is, you know, when it first came out as a kid, I really liked it. But the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that it's not very good. Now, he did do Small Soldiers, it looks like, which I'm a fan of. And then he was part of the Pirates of the Caribbean films which I kind of consider them to be horror-adjacent with some of the things that they use in those movies. Another writer with the story is Daughtry. He has written 11 films. In horror, he has three, which are Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, Trick or Treat, and Krampus. Now, he also did some superhero stuff, which I never kind of realized with X2 and Superman Returns, as well as X-Men Apocalypse, along with, you know, writing along on some of the stuff with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. The final writer of the story is Shields. He seems to collaborate a lot with Daughtry as he's listed for writing three films, which I've seen all of them, which are Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Krampus, and now this one here. Now, one of the actual screenplay writers is Pearson. He has eight writing credits. It looks like the only thing in horror is the upcoming Van Helsing project. Aside from that, it looks like he's in a lot of Marvel properties. Like, he did do Thor Ragnarok and the Black Widow movie, as well as it looks like some of the stuff that are either TV shows or shorts or something along those lines. And the other screenplay writer here is Borenstein. He has eight credits as well. He wrote Godzilla from 2014, Kong Skull Island, Godzilla King of the Monsters, and then this. So he's actually, it looks like, part of the reason that we have such good continuity, so I do have to give credit to him. And then to our actors here, Sarsgaard has 51 acting credits. He's only done one horror film, it looks like, and that is called The Hidden. Now, he is in the Stan TV miniseries, which I consider that to be horror, and he was also in the show True Blood that was on HBO. Now, I've seen him in things like Melancholia, Straw Dogs the Remake, and Zoolander, which the first two that I said there, they have a little bit of horror elements to it. I don't necessarily put them in the horror genre fully, but I just kind of wanted to point that out. And then Brown has a short career since being on Stranger Things, and she's done nine films. The only two things that I've seen her in are this and Godzilla King of the Monsters, and then, of course, I've seen her in Stranger Things. Then the last one I'll go into here is Hall. She has 41 credits. There are only two in the horror genre. The first was a movie that I like called The Awakening. Then the other one is from last year, which is called The Night House. I'm not sure if that's gotten a full release yet. I feel like that title sounds familiar, but it's one I have yet to see. Now, I've also seen her in something like The Prestige, Frost Nixon, The Town, and Iron Man 3, just to name a few of them as well. 
Now, we start this movie off with headlines that get us up to speed with the events from the previous movies with, you know, Godzilla as being the alpha titan in our world. To protect another one, King Kong is being held on Skull Island in a containment center. Studying him is Aline Andrews, who is Hall. Helping her is a little girl of Jai... Portrayed by... Hoddle, who is an orphan from the island. It appears that she might be friendly with the giant gorilla, but he is upset about how he's being held on this island. Then in Florida, we follow Bernie Hayes, who is portrayed by Henry, as he goes to work at a company called Apex. He has a podcast where he keeps his identity hidden, and he knows that this corporation is up to something with Titans. Today, he is making a risky decision to steal data to hopefully blow the top off of what this company is doing. Now, Godzilla has other plans. He attacks this facility. In his escape, he ends up finding a mechanical eye, but he doesn't have a lot of time to investigate it. Godzilla is also being made to be a villain to humanity due to this, and Monarch, the group that watches them, believes that this giant creature, you know, as I said, is their enemy now. Then the CEO of Apex is Walter Simmons, who is portrayed by Bichir, along with his associate of Ren Sirazawa, who is Oguri. They go to visit Nathan Lind, who is Sarsgaard. Him and his brother believe that the in the Hollow Earth theory, his brother died trying to enter one of the theoretical tunnels. But it seemed to be that there's like this extreme gravity shift and he didn't survive that. Nathan also believes that all the Titans are from there as well. Now the reason for this visit is that Walter believes he's created a high-tech machine that can make the journey. They also want Nathan to lead the exploration mission. And in order to make it though, they also need a Titan. And it seems to be that there is a power source down there, or at least that's what Walter believes. And that's the reason he wants to go down there. Now Nathan actually has a relationship with Eileen. It appears to be Rocky, though, and he does convince her to allow them to use King Kong to help find their way into the Hollow Earth. The problem is that when they remove him from the containment habitat, Godzilla will see this as him vying to be the Alpha, and then there only can be one, much like Highlander. Walter doesn't have the best intentions. He believes, as I said, that there's a power source down there, but what he needs it for actually could be the cause of the power becoming unbalanced and agitating Godzilla. So that's why I'm going to leave my recap for that movie is it gets you up to speed with what you need to know without spoiling anything. Where I want to go next would be that I'm surprised by the continuity here, and I do have to give credit once again to the writer of Borenstein for the work that he's put in here to make sure that we don't kind of violate stuff like that. This really does feel like it picks up right where Godzilla King of the Monsters left off and then incorporating elements from Kong Skull Island, even though that movie took place well in the past. That was a strategic to allow King Kong to fully grow into his size. And there's also a little bit of wiggle room here time-wise there as well. Now this movie is interesting with how we focused on Monarch in the previous one. I don't recall this company of Apex, if it was referenced there or not, but I do think that there's an interesting thing with this name. The Apex being the highest point, and this is supposed to be one of the leading companies for technology. Now there's also a dual meaning here with something that they're doing secretively, and I think this is an interesting nod as well to the reveal for it. Walter Simmons is great as his head of this company as well. He seems like a nice guy, but there's just something not quite right about him as well. Now, what I also like with the story is continuing to build on the mythology that they've started. I like that they've shown us in previous movies that Godzilla and King Kong are longtime enemies. This movie is interesting, though, is that it's incorporating the conspiracy theory of the Hollow Earth. We actually see this place in the movie, and I like how it continues to build on the lore there. This feels like a lot like we get in Godzilla King of the Monsters with him you know, having that temple where he goes back when he needs to rest and like recharge and everything. 
it just continues, like I said, to deepen this mythology. And I'm just a sucker for that because I've always been fascinated by mythology. Things like, you know, Greek and Roman and Norse and stuff like that. So them building their own here really kind of pulls me in. Now, there's something in this movie that I wasn't the big fan of, though. King Kong discovers something that made it feel like we're shifting it to be like the Marvel or DC universes. Now, where I'm more accepting of things they do there, especially because of all of the comics and things they've introduced over the years, it doesn't work for me here with the Monster Universe because they've grounded everything in reality as much as you can with kaijus destroying, you know, cities on Earth. The weapon that King Kong finds, although it makes for some cool battle sequences and levels the playing field a bit, I just don't like what they're doing with it. This is really the only major gripe I have with the movie, to be honest, and there's something that I'm not going to say here because it would give it away, but it does remind me of a certain superhero. Now, moving away from the story, I want to go next to what everyone knows about these movies. They are giant CGI fests, and to be honest, I thought it looked great. I didn't have any issues with what they did. With the budget used, I think the details of Godzilla looks great. I'm still a fan of the approach that they have him, you know, to walk on his hind legs, and that's why he's so, like, heavier on the bottom because he would really have to be now i'm not as in love with king kong's look i don't have any major issues with it though they do well in the pacing to give us you know battle sequences or attack scenes it isn't an all-out battle film but i think with how deep they go with the story and the characters it has a good balance for me we also get some minor giant creatures that i liked and there's a third major character as well i won't spoil it even though it was spoiled for me before going in to see this it still didn't ruin anything though I did want to give a shout out to Wingard for directing this. You know, horror fans know him, and I think he does a great job with the cinematography overall. Now, I've already started to move over to this, so I'll go next to the acting. I find this movie to be interesting. Sarsgaard is an underrated actor for me. He has a good look about him, and I think that people might overlook his acting abilities because of it. He plays this reserved guy very well, and then I think Millie Bobby Brown is solid as this rambunctious young woman. She continued to build on what she did from the previous movie. There's also a solid mirror of her with this younger girl of Hoddle. I like that where Madison feels kinship to Godzilla, Gia feels this way to King Kong. I like the addition of Hall. Henry brings some good comedy and investigation to his role. Aguri, Gonzalez, Reddick, Chandler, Birchier, and the rest of the cast do round this out for what was needed in my opinion. I do also like the personality that they give to King Kong and Godzilla and the other large creatures in this movie but most prominently to those two since they are the featured two that we kind of get a feeling about like when King Kong is being sad I could feel that from the facial expressions and the thing they're doing with him and you know Godzilla just being as angry as he is I like how they can convey it through body language as well as just the looks on its face then really the last thing I wanted to go into would be the soundtrack I absolutely love that this movie is taking classic songs from the series and using them here I really notice a Godzilla one when him and Kong first face off in the ocean Aside from those tracks that I recognize, I thought the rest fit for what was needed in building it up to the feel of the scenes that they're going for. Now, I really dug what they're doing for sure with that, and then the creature calls and sound design also help to bring a sense of realism on top of that as well. So before I move on to my closing thoughts here, I just have a little bit of trivia. There's a lot of it on IMDb. I'm not going to share it all, though. did find it interesting that Kaylee Hoddle is actually a deaf girl that is from an all-deaf family, so shout out to them for doing that. This will be the first film in 59 years to feature both King Kong and Godzilla after the movie from 1963. This one takes place five years after King of the Monsters, and I guess it's supposed to be taking place in 2019, and then this is 51 years after what happened in Kong Skull Island, which took place in 73. 
fourth installment of the MonsterVerse. This one actually has the shortest film in the MonsterVerse series as well. This is the 36th film in the Godzilla saga and the 12th film in the King Kong saga. Kong was also chained up in a cargo ship mirrors what happened in King Kong vs. Godzilla, where he was also tied up and transported in a barge that is being pulled by another ship. The, there are some giant cobra-like snakes that we see in the Hollow Earth that are called Titanius Warbats. This is Terry Rossio's first Godzilla movie after his unfilmed screenplay nicknamed Godzilla vs. The Griffin. This is the first time that Godzilla faces off against Kong in an American movie. And this actually reverses the title of the original take on it. It is also interesting that Lance Reddick was also in Godzilla 1998. And so that's all I'm really going to share from the you know trivia there. So then in conclusion here, I really like what they did with this movie. I tried to temper my expectations, but I think this one lived up to what I wanted. The mythology that they've introduced here helps to set the stage and they continue to build on it. I like incorporating conspiracy theories here to help deepen the story. I like what they do around the kaijus, and I also think it helps to bridge the really good battle sequences. The CGI looks amazing, to be honest. I like what they did with the soundtrack and sound design. I really just had a gripe with one aspect, and that takes some of the realism out for me. Regardless, I thought this was a really good movie. This is another one that I'll watch before the end of the year to see where I stand with it as well now that I have seen it once. So my rating here for Godzilla vs. Kong is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section since this movie, you know, is in the theaters. It's only been out for a couple days at the time of recording this. Do you want people to go out there and see it or at least watch it on HBO Max? So what I am going to do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here on episode number 74, you could send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Anything that you'd like to have read on from those emails, you can go ahead and just let me know in that. If not, if you just have any sort of critiques or any kind of feedback, that would be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's Reviews of the Dead at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, can you make sure that you are subscribed so you never miss a new episode? And if you could also rate and review on there, just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get to as many new listeners as possible. So then for the next episode here on 75, I think I'm going to end up doing a list episode here just for the fact that, you know, it is kind of another milestone type episode. So what I think I'm going to do on there is, since I've watched a list of horror films that start with the letter B, I've completed what was, you know, from the Fangoria Top 300 as well as the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. What I think I'm going to do is share my top 25 horror movies that start with the letter B. I'll also do some honorable mentions as well as I will do my bottom 10 of horror movies that start with the letter B as well. So I think that is going to be what the feature will be. But then I'm also going to watch a 2021 film. Um, I think I'm going to watch The Unholy. Jamie and I, I think, are going to go to the theater to see that one. We're trying to lock down a day and time that you know works for both of us and everything like that. And then I will throw a another Odyssey through the ones type thing as well, where I will watch a movie from a year that ends in one that I... Since it's not going to be a Odyssey Through the Ones like featured episode, I'm going to end up probably watching one that I've seen before. It just hasn't been a long time since I've you know rated and reviewed it type thing like that. So I don't know what the older film will be, but I will have one on there. So I really think that's all I kind of wanted to get you up to speed with. So just here in closing, whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>